scripture text for this morning is from Romans 8, verses 28 to 32. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? What an anchor, Father. What an anchor. This text can be for our souls. So I ask now for help that you would use me to lodge the anchor of our lives in the holy place of your faithfulness to your promises. And I pray that you would perform what Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 calls the circumcision of the heart, that we might love you with all our heart and soul, that we might live Lord, nobody loves you without a great heart work done by the Holy Spirit in response to the new covenant faithfulness of God. So, Lord, would you create love for yourself as you are displayed now, as you have been and will now be again in this message. Awaken the dead. Give sight to the blind. Give ears to the deaf. Give release to the captives who've been taken captive to do the will of the devil. May this be an hour of liberation and salvation and anchoring for all the saints. And I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, here we come to what is probably the most sweeping and perhaps most loved promise in the Bible. And God willing, we'll be here for three weeks in verse 28. Because as much as I had hoped to make progress... This is just too big, too weighty, too great, too anchor-like to pass over any of its three parts. Namely, the promise itself, all things will work together for your good. The truth that you have to love God for this to be true. And the truth that you have to be called according to His purpose for this to be true. Those three things take 30 minutes each. I don't know any other way to do it. So... This is a very precious passage of Scripture. Some of you, it's your life verse. It's the kind of verse that will sustain the Burnhams and the New Tribes mission. It's the kind of verse that will cause young people to hear of this 
death and say, I'm going. That's what this verse is for. All things work together for good. Years ago, I taught all the children in this church and all the childlike who would join them to say, when things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. We heard it for years after that, and then it sort of faded out. So I want to reinstate it. When things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. Let's say it together. When things don't go the way they should, God always makes them turn for good. Christians are the kind of people for whom sorrow and pain and disappointment and losses sooner or later, always turn for good. There are some translation peculiarities, aren't there? The New American Standard translates this verse, God causes all things to work together for good. The NIV says, in all things... God works for good. And the King James and the English Standard Version say, all things work together for good. Now, as I've pondered all three of those kinds of translations, what has encouraged me is that they don't matter much in their differences. Because when the King James and the English Standard Version say, all things work together for good, they don't mean that resident in all things is some native power that causes them to turn out good, or that there's some fatalistic force in the world that makes all things turn out that way. What they really mean is, and what this text means is, all things work together for good because God is making them work together for good. So whether you make the all things the subject of the verb or God the subject of the verb, the meaning is the same. In these. So they, they come together with God doing the, the guiding and the providential work of causing all things to move toward our good. And he does it out of all things. So you got those three elements. God is moving. There's all things out of which and in which he's moving. And it's all leading to our good. All the texts agree on that basic meaning. So I don't think we have to be too distressed that our versions are a little bit different in wording. I do think that the King James and the English Standard Version are uh, the, the simplest, most natural way to take the Greek, but I'm glad I don't have to choose. Next week, we're going to go to the parking lot. And I thought weeks ago, now where am I going to be in Romans 8 when we get to the parking lot? And I calculated we'd be in this verse, but I didn't know whether it be first, second, or third part of this verse. And uh, we'll be there, and what I will do on the parking lot next week is take the heart of the promise, all things work together for good, and I will just unpack that for all it's worth from biblical illustrations, historical illustrations, missionary illustrations, personal illustrations, and we will just... Lift up the banner. Yes, this is a true promise. It's the most glorious thing in the world about the Christian life that nothing befalls the saints, but that God does not turn for their good. That's what I'll say next week. Now, today, the focus is on this question. What must be true of me 
for this promise to be mine? What must be true of me for this promise that all things work together for good to be something I can claim? The first thing we need to see is that it isn't true for everybody. There are people for whom it will not come true. Because you have these two qualifications. All things work together for good for those who, one, love God. Do you love God this morning? If you don't, this promise is not yours. And are called according to his purpose. Are you called this morning? Have you been called by Jesus Christ? If not, the promise isn't yours. You can't claim this. In fact, what this text clearly implies is that there are people for whom all things will not work for good, but in fact, all things will work for bad. All things will work for bad. Listen to Paul in Romans 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. In other words, day by day, there are people who walk through painful experiences and do not trust God to help them get through these things and turn them for good. And those painful experiences then will be wrath for them. They will be the foretastes of final and eternal pain. Or they walk through pleasures, tremendous pleasures people walk through, not giving any thanks to God and not turning those pleasures into a moment of worship whereby they see in and through those pleasures the beauty of God and cherish Him above those pleasures. And those pleasures will come back on their head as condemnation in the end. All things will work for bad for those who do not love God and are not called according to his purpose. And we don't want to be that way. I'm sure you don't. We want this promise to be true for us. And so we need to take it two weeks. This one and the one two weeks from now. And figure out if we qualify. Is it ours? So today, we're going to talk about loving God. That's all we're going to talk about. And frankly, I'm astonished. I read lots of commentaries on this verse. And it is amazing how many commentaries don't say a word about this. They do not say a word about the meaning of the love of God. They just assume if you say the word love... You know what it means. And I'm persuaded hardly anybody knows what it means in America today. And many in the church don't. So, we're going to linger here. First thing I want to say is that this verse is not saying, does not mean that you go in and out of loving God. And when you're in the experience of loving God, what you experience goes well for you. And when you're out of the experience of loving God, what you experience goes bad for you. 
That is not what this text means. And we know it's not because he further qualifies lovers of God with those who are called according to his purpose. Now, here I have to jump ahead two weeks and just say a brief word. The call of God here, which is according to his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, we'll see. The call of God is a once for all thing. It is a resurrection of the dead. It is the giving eyes to the blind, ears to the deaf. It is waking up the sleeper. It is calling you out of darkness into light, out of death into life, so that you cease to be hostile to God and start loving God. The call of God is the sovereign work of God in and through the gospel, whereby you are drawn to him and given a new heart and made to love and trust Jesus Christ. And of course... Our love for God in real life goes up and down. There are moments of high level intensity of our love for God. And there are moments of great weakness whereby it feels as though it is almost vanished. But this text is saying there are the called who love God. And for these people, everything always works for good. There are not some experiences that work for good when they're having high-level love for God and some experiences that work for bad when they're having low-level love for God. That is not what this text says. All things, all the time, work for your good if you're a God lover, whether it's intense or whether it's low. Now, how should we get at the meaning of love for God? What should we say about it? And as I pondered this, I think the most helpful thing I could do is to take you to what it does not mean. I'm going to mention three things that it does not mean. And it will become, I hope, very clear in the process what it does mean. And I'm doing this so that you now can feel yourself by the power of the word drawn into the love of God. And if you don't love God, I pray that that will become clear so that you can take steps to embrace him as your treasure. Here's the first thing love for God does not mean. It does not mean meeting God's needs. Now that seems obvious, and yet we so often think of love as what we do for each other. And if you love somebody and they have needs, you try to meet them. That's clear. And so love does mean, when it's acted out among people, meeting people's needs. If you try to take that definition of love and move it into your God relationship, you will blaspheme. Acts 17.25, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and everything. God is radically different than people. Our love to him is very different than our love for each other. It is never, ever, ever meeting needs. You do not meet God's needs because God has no needs. He has no deficiencies that we can supply. He has no defects that we can reverse. He has no needs that we supply. Therefore, I'll draw this inference positively. The essence of love to God is 
always and without exception receiving. Now, I said essence because I know that we do use the word love to cover not only its essence, but often its fruits, its behaviors. And so sometimes we think of ourselves as giving praise, giving honor, giving service, giving obedience. It's a very dangerous use of language. Not wrong, just dangerous. Because the essence of loving God is receiving from God. And yes, I mean that joy in God is always a receiving of pleasure from the object of our delight. Second thing that love is not. Love is not... Love towards God, the essence of love towards God, is not love for his gifts. And by his gifts, I mean forgiveness of sins, justification, escape from hell, and resurrection to a pain-free life. Those are his best gifts. Loving God does not mean being glad that your sins are forgiven. Loving God does not mean, in its essence, being glad that you are imputed righteous. Loving God does not mean, in its essence, gladness that I have escaped from hell. Loving God does not mean, in its essence, gladness that I will be free from disease someday and have an everlasting life of pleasure We know that that's not the essence of loving God because people who don't love God are glad for all those things. Nobody wants a guilty conscience and is very happy if you can tell them a way to get rid of it. Nobody wants to go to hell and suffer forever and they're very happy to escape from that. Whatever means they can use to get out. Everybody would love the prospect of eternal joy. And everybody would like to be counted righteous when they don't have to be righteous. And none of them has to love God. If they can convince themselves in their minds that I'm forgiven because of Christ. I'm justified because of Christ. I've escaped hell because of Christ. And I'm going to heaven because of Christ. And frankly, I like television better than Christ. That is possible. I think there's loads of people in the church like that. They're real happy to be safe. And they have no heart for God. None. Loving God is not loving his gifts. Third thing that it does not mean. The essence of loving God is not the things that love prompts you to do. The essence of loving God is not the things that love prompts you to do. This is kind of a missions morning. The love of God, the love for God might prompt you to leave mother and father and lands and houses 
and declare the name of God among the nations. But leaving mother, leaving father, leaving houses, leaving lands, declaring the glory of God is not the love of God. The essence of the love of God is not the fruit of the love of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I've heard so many people take that text and make keeping the commandments the definition of love. It's exactly the opposite of what the text says. If you love me, then you will do a certain thing. And the doing is not the loving. This is the root. This is the fruit. Jesus put it like this to Peter in John 21. Peter, do you love me? Remember this scene at the end of his earthly life? Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. Did Jesus say, oh, good, that's all that needs to be said, because if you love me, then clearly you're doing everything I command you to do. Because that's what love is. He did not say that, because that's not what love is. He said, if you love me, Peter, feed my sheep. Act like it. Act like it. The acting is not the essence of the loving. This is really big. See if I can draw those three negatives into some positives now. What I'm saying is that love for God is the heart's esteem for God before it produces anything else. The heart's esteem for, admiration of, delight in, cherishing of God. Before it produces anything. Love for God is not in its essence a deliberated choice. Love for God is not in its essence a deed. It is a reflex of the newborn heart. The called heart to the beauty of God in Christ. You don't decide... To taste honey as sweet. If you have living taste buds and you put it on the tongue, it is sweet. If your taste buds are dead, it isn't sweet. And you can rummage around with all kinds of decisions and it will stay non-sweet. It's life. Life that produces love for God. And the sight of glory, beauty, wonder, preciousness, value... I stress this because I don't want to produce hypocrites in this church. I don't want to go to my grave saying, John Piper helped produce a big church of hypocrites. And that's exactly what we produce, I believe, by equating deeds of love with love. If the essence of love is the deeds that love does, they can be imitated. And imitated love is hypocrisy. If the deeds and the fruit of love do not come from this other deep, wonderful, God-wrought, miraculous reflex of delighting in God for himself, we beget hypocrites. Oh, they look so shiny, squeaky, clean. And I fear there are many 
in the church, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, who've been taught all their lives, do, 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 do. And God will approve and you'll be safe. And this text says, you want God to work for you? You want him to work everything together for your good? Don't start with doing. Start with loving. Experience something of him. And I would produce hypocrites, I believe, if I defined the essence of God's love as love for his gifts. How many children, now I'm going to be very, very dangerous here, but this is a warning to parents. How many children's testimonies say that they were scared when they heard about hell and wanted to escape and so prayed to receive Jesus. Now, I believe that in his mercy, God works in little children's hearts, often at those moments, so that there's more than fear of hell going on. There really is a little seed of delight in God, love for God, love for Jesus. If there isn't, they're not saved. To embrace Jesus as a fire insurance policy and not a beloved Savior is not salvation. To embrace Him as the forgiver of sins and not to embrace Him as the lover of our souls that satisfies our desires so that we'd want to be with Him forever as the result of our forgiveness, that's not salvation. Do you know why we love to be forgiven? Why we love justification? Why we love escape from hell? Why we love the promise of heaven? Because all those things do two things. One, they show us the kind of God we have. And two, they get us there. They get us to Him. That's why they're precious. Who cares about forgiveness of sins? I mean, who cares, right? Unless it means... Reconciliation with our Father who satisfies our souls in relationship. Forgiveness means nothing if it doesn't produce that. Neither does justification, neither does escape from hell. Heaven without Jesus. If that is attractive to you, you're not saved. Jesus is our heaven. The Father is our heaven. Which is why I don't get really worked up about too many matters of timing and so on. About the last days. Let me try with ten words. I've used some already. I'm just going to use them again to tell you positively what the love of God is. This is absolutely crucial to me. And the longer I live and the closer I get to death and the more I think about death, the more precious it becomes to me. Because I know I'm going to meet him. I'm going to meet him in an instant when I breathe my last. And I want my heart to not to have to do anything radical when I get there. I just want it to be a step closer. I want all the feelings to have begun. 
I want all the worship and affection to be authentic so that I don't get there and hear him say, you have no part in me. You never even knew what it was to love me. I don't want to hear that. That's frightening. So I grasp for words, and I've been grasping for 30 years for these words. Everything I write is an attempt to get at this and my preaching. And so here are my 10 words. Loving God is in its essence desiring God himself in and beyond his gifts. Underline the word desiring. Loving God in its essence is treasuring God in and beyond his gifts. Loving God is delighting in God himself in and beyond his gifts. Loving God is being satisfied with God himself in and beyond his gifts. Loving God is cherishing God himself in and beyond his gifts. Love for God is savoring God himself in and beyond his gifts. Loving God is valuing God and prizing God and revering God and admiring God in and beyond his gifts. Ten words. Desiring, treasuring, delighting, being satisfied, savoring, cherishing, valuing, prizing, revering, admiring, and there are many more. And I'm groping. I'm groping because words are utterly inadequate for experiences. They're not the same, right? To say a thing and to feel a thing, to experience a thing are not the same. And so I do my best. That's my job to preach. Let me try to help you one other way. I know that some of you come to Romans 8.28 feeling a catch-22 and you're trapped because of a preconception in your mind of what love to God is. Here's what I mean. You come to this text and you're wired in such a way as to interpret love as a response to God's being good to you, not your delighting in him for what he is, that you read this text, all things work together for good, and you want it to be true for you so that you can love God in response to it. And then you see these words, it's only true for those who love God. And you're trapped. Catch 22. I want the promise to be true for me so that I can love him. But I got to love him for the promise to be true for me. I'm trapped. I felt that way about this promise a long time. I was so puzzled. Because I had this wiring in my brain that love for God is simply and only Feeling good about his being good to me. So this promise has to be good to me. It has to be nice to me. Then I can respond and love him. And I see in this text, you've got to love him for this text to be true for you. And I'm trapped. Now there's a way out of that trap. 
there is an escape. And it has to do with your mind being altered about what the love of God is. What love for God means and how it arises in your heart. So let me try to tell you the escape path. And I pray that you'll take it right now. As I say it, you take it. You take it. When you come to this promise, or any promise, or any other part of Scripture, when you come to it, look at it and through it to God Himself who makes the promise. Before it applies to you. Look at the God in it and behind it. And let yourself see Him, taste Him, feel Him, dwell on Him, meditate on Him in and through. The God that makes these kinds of promises. The God behind this promise. The God with this mercy, this love, this wisdom, this power. Let yourself linger with this God before you decide if this applies to you. Just look at God. Look at Him. Watch Him. And then broaden that out. Look at all that He has done in history to reveal Himself. Look especially at Jesus Christ. Jesus is God incarnate. He's put there on earth and in the Bible so that we could look at Him. Nobody, nobody was like Jesus. So behold Jesus before creation. He had the glory of God. Then look at Him condescendingly coming. Look at His sacrificial, obedient, humble, lowly, loving, healing, powerful, Satan-defeating life. And then look at His His blood dripping from all over His body, head, side, hands, feet, back. Look at His blood dripping as He hangs there for unworthy sinners. Before you ask if you're one that's included. Just look at Him. Look at him coming out of the grave with mighty power. Look at him rising and sitting at the Father's right hand and advocating for his people. And look at him coming again in glory and gathering his elect from the four winds. Look at this magnificent Christ. And behold, the answer to all your questions. The fulfillment of all your dreams and all your desires. The satisfaction of all your longings. Behold your God. And when you treasure Him, it's all yours. It's all yours. Somebody will say to me, and I feel very painful for this person, and uh, I like you. I like you. I love you and I like you. Somebody will say to me, Pastor John, I just heard what you said, that the pathway into the possessing of the promises is to behold the God of the promises until, by grace, I love him. You know what? I don't have any desire to behold him. I just want to go home and watch television. I just want to go eat. I like to go work on my hobby. What can we say to such a person? The Bible is not without words at this point. And here's what I would say in closing to those of you who 
who have heard me open a door of escape have given you steps you could take to look to God in his promises, in his word. And some of you say, I don't even want to take those steps. I don't feel like it. I don't have any desire for God. I just want to get out of this room right now and and go watch watch this big sporting weekend, maybe. Well, here's what I would say. Oh, endangered sinner. If there's one shred of fear left in your body, if there's one small token of desire to desire, then use it to pray Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The great new covenant promise like this. And you could just say it in your head as I pray it. Oh God, circumcise my heart. And if you don't like that image or if that's too old-fashioned, just say, God, change my heart. And the rest of the text says, so that I might love you with all my heart and all my soul, that I might live. That's the promise of the new covenant. He will circumcise their hearts that they might love him and live. Ask God. Ask God to change your heart. Let's pray. There's a song that puts that prayer very powerfully. It's an old song, and I'll read it to you. Even though there are hundreds and hundreds of God lovers in this room, none of us loves him as we could and ought. And so we may pray for it. Here's the way the song goes. Spirit of God, descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth. Through all its pulses, move. Stoop to my weakness, mighty as thou art. And make me love thee. Isn't that an amazing prayer? Make me love thee. I pray that. I hope you're willing to pray it. Make me love thee. As I ought to love. Why don't you stand for a benediction? Now may God, who's the fulfiller of the great and new covenant, cause you, make you, to love Him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and so assure you that you are a beneficiary of all things working for good. And all the people said, Amen.